You have queued up the Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? Welcome. I'm Beck Ziegens, producer of this episode of The Roulette Tapes. In this edition, we dive into a treasure of Roulette's concert archive, a rare live recording of genre-defying cellist, vocalist, composer, and producer Arthur Russell. From the mid-70s until his passing in 1992, Russell was a fixture of the downtown scene, collaborating with countless artists from David Byrne to Peter Gordon and producing an immense and varied body of work, much of which he never released. Russell's work has reached larger audiences in recent years as the over 1,000 tapes he left behind have been gradually compiled into a series of widely beloved posthumous releases by Autica Records. The concert we're about to listen to was performed on a Monday evening, March 2nd, 1985, in the Tribeca loft that was Roulette's original location. We'll hear Russell sing and play his legendary cello with Casio keyboard by Elodie Lawten and trombone by Peter Zumo, who will also be providing commentary throughout the episode. Zumo was Russell's friend and most frequent collaborator. He appears in much of Russell's work as a performer, but also co-produced several of his releases, including magnum opus World of Echo, which would be released in the year following this performance. One familiar with Russell's work can hear him experimenting throughout this concert with repeated phrases and lines that would later emerge as more fully developed songs. We'll begin with an early prototype of This Is How We Walk on the Moon. Please enjoy Arthur Russell and Peter Zumo.
Each step is moving, is moving me on. Moving, it's moving me on. Every step is moving me on. Each step is moving, moving me on. Moving, it's moving me on. One tiny, tiny, tiny move. It's all I need and I jump over. Every step is moving me on. I'm uh, Peter Zumo. I'm a musician and composer, arranger, band leader, engineer, producer, um, organizer. And I had a career in higher education which lasted 34 years. I've been retired for seven and I'm just working in music. I moved to New York in 1975 my wife, Stephanie Woodard, uh, said, we're moving to New York. She was a dancer and uh, into the uh, experimental choreography scene, the downtown dance scene. And I thought, well, I'll become a session musician. And um, as it happened, that was pretty much the end of the session musician time. And through the various dance contacts and some of the uh, artists who were a bit older than me, uh, I became involved in the, the downtown music scene. You know, people uh, then wanted, wanted to get more involved in what was this mystery that was happening downtown, and some of us were just here. Whether it's personal choice or you find yourself there and it's working, my instincts were to be involved at the, the forward edge. It was a smaller community, and it was geographically fairly uh, focused to downtown Manhattan. So it was convenient, and we all went to the concerts. So you went to dance concerts, and you went to video and poetry, and there was a um, intermedia mixing of the art forms, which was healthy and informed the development of the direction in music. And you met people, you were introduced to people. Arthur Russell moved to New York City just two years before Zumo, after running away from his childhood home in Iowa at the age of 18 and exploring new spiritual and musical horizons in California. Well, we know that he had left Iowa and gone to the, the ashram in uh, San Francisco. And I think he met Allen Ginsberg there. So he was 
interested in Buddhism and he was aware of, let's say, Indian music, uh, Asian music, different music. He had, uh, I don't know exactly the, the years, but he studied at, was it Manhattan School of Music? So he was, he was interested in um, contemporary classical composition. And he had experienced other things in music. So there are two, those two threads, world music and contemporary classical, but I was alluding to popular music in some sense. He can't keep it inside He gets on his bicycle and goes As I remember it, Stephanie and I had a third-floor loft on uh, 22nd Street near 7th Avenue, and I had my tape recorder up there, and um, I was doing whatever I did. And uh, I, I do remember at that time taking the Harmon mute for the trombone, which has the removable stem. It makes this wah-wah sound. And, and I, with the stem out, I had a like a five-watt light bulb that had fallen and the stem broke inside, but it was still connected by the filaments so that it would vibrate against the glass. So I mounted corks on uh, three corks like one has on a brass instrument mute, and I could put this in the Harmon mute. And as I play, the things are moving sideways and back and forth, so this, this thing would rattle. And uh, I remember I was recording that and then using headphones. And because of the headphones, I couldn't hear uh, for a while, but Arthur was down on the sidewalk calling up to me. It's not like we had cell phones or anything. <laughs> so after a while, I, I realized that he was down there. And so um, he was after me, uh, you know, for some reason. So I guess he probably said, I, you know, can you rehearse? Can you play this show, um, this club, whatever, go, do a recording? And that, that we started. Hearing but not understanding. I want to see what's there. Loving when I get excited. Breaking away. I think what he saw in me was, first of all, the horn player in the band, but it was trombone, which is the most vocal of the uh, instruments. And I could read anything he wrote, sight read, and he wrote a lot of syncopated, complicated things and I could play funky. We shared similar interests in technology and uh, again, this uh, divide or bridge between uh, existing music and the future music and classical and popular. And we got along, you know, and he was funny and I was funny, you know, we'd, we'd tell jokes and uh, comment on things like whatever. We both played a tenor instrument which either is not what you would do if you're putting a band together, <laughs> or it was could be that I was the um, foil or the uh, 
the other voice. One time, I think it was when we were recording uh, the uh, This Is How We Walk on the Moon, he and I were standing around this microphone and I had the trombone. He said, now I want you to play exactly what I'm singing as I sing it. And I did that. And to me, that's, that's like some kind of magic, how there's no latency <laughs> in real time to do exactly what the other person is doing. So he knew I could do that. But it's got something to do with this other form of communication that we're both uh, in sync. studio in Westbeth in the, I guess, starting around 81. I tended to go early for my extended warm-ups, and then Arthur would show up and we would work all afternoon. And uh, that could have been anything. Uh, I'd show him something new I was doing, or we'd rehearse for his show or mine, or we would read uh, Christian Wolf's exercises. Uh, we'd experiment with little cassette recorders and the distorted sound we could get by overloading them. And he'd come up to me on the street with, uh, with his little uh, Walkman and headphones and he'd give me the headphones and say, okay, which do you think is better, A or B? And I'd say, I can't hear the difference, but I gotta say, your vocal is like right on there. And he said, oh, I can do that anytime. Uh, it was a subtle EQ difference or something that in that moment outdoors on headphones, I couldn't say I, I could prefer one or the other. He'd call up and say, what are you doing tonight? What are you doing around 8 o'clock tonight? And I say, oh, well, I was going to... Uh, he said, can you compose? And I said, well, I was going to be working on programming some synth sounds. He said, okay, we'll do it around 8 o'clock, because that was the full moon. Uh, or other times, can you come on whatever Thursday night, get to the studio at 9? You know, and I said, sure, you know, and it's the full moon, and we're going to go all night. Because he believed that not only how it, the, the movement of the planets or the whatever, the energy of the full moon, would affect the people, but also the magnetic particles on the tape or the voltage waveform as it courses through the wires. Even doing a tape transfer, 24 to 24 track tape transfer, he felt that the uh, oxide 
particles on the tape would align in a different way at the moment of the full moon. And who's to say they don't? You can come with me Pointing to my way from home You can come with me Pointing to my way from home You can come with me Pointing to my way Experimental Intermedia Foundation, 224 Center Street, Phil Niblock's place, and then there was Roulette as <laughs> the other comfortable loft place with, was there dinner? I don't remember if Jim had food at that time. But, you know, the, you're in somebody's space. And, uh, and I remember the fire station there would be the sirens occasionally down below. The rest is in the center. It comes to take you to the treetop. You know, some of those uh, clubs we played downtown, <laughs> there weren't a lot of people there. <laughs> but that was par for the course, too. So, I mean, that was, again, just part of uh, developing the material. You know, you know now, we're, now this is a show. And it doesn't matter, you know, you don't um, hold back because of the size of the audience or anything. We just did our thing. So that's almost like a, a rehearsing in a different venue. But you can't do this at home. You can't get to the level I want to get to at home. And probably not in rehearsal either, With even if you're with the band and you're making a loud sound. Um, it's It wouldn't be healthy to try to get yourself a notch up or two by yourself. You do it in the presence of a community. We're lying down and we're looking, looking, looking down. In this concert we're talking about, one of the things that fascinates me is uh, my willingness to not play. <laughs> and I don't know what my instructions were, whether he said, uh, okay, I'm going to have you play on this first tune, and then, I, then I'm going to do some solo stuff, so don't play, uh, or what. But often we didn't really know what his plan was, even uh, like in a lot of those clubs downtown that we played. Uh, to a very small audience. We'd rehearse and have a set list, but actually have no idea where he was in the set list as we went along. So if he could get a ensemble sound going, he was quite ready to just 
dive into the next song or or just do what what he thought would sound good with that. So there was a, an, an element of chaos, and I was a, a big fan of trying to work chaos in music. So I'm curious to know what my instructions were. Uh, but my guess is that I had one of his development sheets that had what we would call the tone row or the pitch set in written in whole notes, one per bar, possibly with a number below them which indicated a duration, a number of pulses, which he used to develop a lot of music, uh, notably Tower of Meaning. So it may have been that that's the piece of paper he gave me to work from and I took it very literally. But you hear right there at the beginning of that uh, what I think is like a classical style coming from me and a more pop singer-songwriter style coming from him. And I, I can only assume that that's what he intended. But that's a song that uh, the sudden chill, he ends on that upbeat, da 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 and it's a surprise. And I seem to be wherever I am in the sequence, and I stop with him. A sudden chill broke the dream he leans away from where he is. He laughs so dry. That's the very reason I have opened this. You reminded me, I responded in the other way. You reminded me I'm 
distinctly seeking a rapprochement between uh, serious and popular music. He came to me one day and said, if you write what you think is serious music and put a beat good enough to move the body to it, it will absolutely be dismissed by the serious music establishment. Of course, I was listening to popular music the whole time, uh, but performing or recording what it's called dance music now, uh, was probably not something I would have done otherwise, um, except for Arthur. I met a lot of people, uh, or I knew them because we were a community, but Arthur brought a, a unique set of people into that because uh, distinctly with Arthur, there were people from different musical education backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and um, one learned to uh, navigate that kind of environment musically and, and productively. One time I was in his apartment, uh, I would guess later 80s, 80, could be mid 80s, and the phone rang. We were rehearsing, working on something, and the phone rang, and he said, okay, some really weird people are gonna come up here now, so just, you know, just be cool. <laughs> I thought, really weird? Because <laughs> uh, everybody was different. I like to emphasize Arthur, uh, the artist, because he was just so strong. He played good and sang real good, so <laughs> that gets across. He, he would um, take any instruction that I might give to the limit. Like if I said, don't go too fast. So he went really fast, <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> He would always uh, push the limits, both uh, musically and in terms of the, the social environment and what he could get away with uh, about maybe sh showing up late or um, to the extent that he could talk someone into 
providing studio time on the basis of some sort of trade or paying for something or uh, lend him a piece of equipment. Um, it was all about pursuing his experiment. I don't know how to define genius, but he certainly had the capacity to think about something, pursue it and complete it, or take it to a point of development that it would be a great record or you know, a, a composition worth studying 50 years later. Because they say Mozart was the genius, and uh, it was largely in just the, the capacity and the output, you know, it seems to me. Uh, mental capacity. What did Mozart do? The last three symphonies finished number 39 in his head and then wrote it down while doing 40. <laughs> so there's something about the focus, you know, the, the, the willingness to, well, I, I could use the word indulge. He was willing to indulge in uh, daily practice of just doing the art that gets across decades later just doing it and in at a very a high level and a um, high output level and um, uh, with an intensity and, and a heart you hear that in this from the audience. Uh, we did things at Dance Theater Workshop uh, with Stephanie's dance and uh, I put the band together and he literally um, positioned himself behind the, the wing curtains so you could only see the bow coming out. Now he may have thought that was a, a way of presenting dance, uh, music for dance, but, but he did tend to hide and I have uh, photos. We did a, a small show at uh, Lincoln Center Bandshell, Bill Rule playing uh, talk, African talking drum, me and Arthur with his Ampeg amp, and he's crouched down, hiding behind the amp, 
with the cello sticking out. Now, that could be a, an acoustic thing, too. Who knows what the feedback possibilities were. But, but there is ample uh, examples of him see, appearing to hide from the audience. Oh, and the way he would often, it, it was, I, th I found it very uh, engaging, but we'd play the song, uh, and then he would say, the name of the next song is whatever, and, the, and it was all in a kind of a silly high monotone, and then we would play the next song, and that, that would be the announcement, so that it was a calculated uh, form of addressing the audience, so it's putting on a show. But sometimes the music went on for an hour or an hour and a half straight and there was no gap. Maybe he just wanted the music to speak for himself. There was an ambivalence in there. Again, I think he resisted being uh, the front man in a rock band. And success might mean that you failed, so. <laughs> Well, if a lot of people like it, maybe it's not so good, you know. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you or I are uh, continually thrust back into the underground, that's where we need to be. I think he would have liked to have released more during his lifetime, but he he held a very high bar for what he considered a, a finished project. Now I say that at the same time that he was obviously willing to hand that over to a, a remixer for a lot of these things, and that was very successful. So, and that's again trusting your collaborators. But. Uh, I have to hold in my mind the thought that there's a reason why he didn't release a lot of that stuff, because it wasn't up to the standards he was uh, seeking or imagining. And in that sense, releasing it now has historical value, but I think there needs to be the context that um, uh, he released things when he thought, th thought they were ready. Uh, I, I suspect he, uh, there's probably things out now that he might <laughs> it might take him a while to get uh, to become comfortable with. word gets out that he was uh, difficult or funny or um, shy or um, a megalomaniac or <laughs> and not that any of those, not that all of those exist then people like might want to latch on to one of those or something and that and none of that is the complete picture of a complicated person I've found that it's difficult uh, to come to grips with what, uh, with being an artist, a and you have to if you're going to uh, 
face the audience and uh, stay, uh, stick with it. So you have to accept the fact that, yes, I am an artist. Um, <laughs> and you have to accept what comes with that. So uh, he was uh, negotiating that all the time. I just think that the various media, the, the film, uh, the books, uh, all paint a picture sometimes with an agenda that um, uh, can leave you with an impression that's far from the complete picture. I think that's true of you know any any history. There's the risk of um, overemphasis distorting the complete picture, and, and no one is going to have the complete picture. So I hope this helps a little bit or doesn't distort too much but my perspective may be distorted. At the age of 40, Arthur Russell died of AIDS-related illness. The HIV and AIDS epidemic was hitting Manhattan the hardest of any borough, and its presence was deeply felt in the downtown scene. We knew a lot of artists who uh, passed and suffered. Uh, It, it was just uh, uh, a fact, really, you know, that that, that was happening. And uh, I saw Arthur, you know, I was going to work in, in his apartment when he was sick. I saw him in the hospital close to the end. Uh, Tom called me the morning he died. How will you remember Arthur Russell? Fondly.
These programs are made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Grammy Museum. Special thanks to David Weinstein and Martine Gonzalez. I'm Beck Siegens. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org. Thank you.